0: for some the time between Christmas and New year is a chance to prepare for the upcoming year for others it's a chance to unwind from the normal stresses of life and relax with family while the hype of the holiday season dies down for one family in 1985 those seven days were filled with anxiety and uncertainty when their loved one went missing although she was found on the first day of 1986 their torment would only intensify after police announced that they disagreed with the family's belief that she she been murdered despite all the evidence to the contrary. Let's uncover the suspicious death of Debbie Wolfe. Hello and welcome to the 30th episode of Uncover True Crime podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we uncover a different unsolved true crime case ranging from missing persons, Unsolved Murders, Jane and John Doe's and Suspicious Deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast streaming apps as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. You can follow us on Twitter at Uncover underscore pod, on Instagram at Uncover True crime pod and you can join the Uncover True Crime discussion group on Facebook. But without any further ado, let's uncover the suspicious death of Debbie Wolfe. Deborah Ann Wolfe, most commonly known as Debbie, was born on the 19th of June 1957 to Jerry and Jenny Wolfe. She had five brothers, Pete, Jerry, Joseph, John and John's twin brother who sadly died in infancy. Jerry and Jenny split up when their children were young but would later go on to marry other people. Debbie and her siblings originally were born in Arkansas, although I believe they grew up in Louisiana as that's where Debbie would later be laid to rest. At some point during her life, Debbie moved to a cabin on MacArthur Road around 4 miles from Fayetteville, North Carolina, where she lived with her two dogs, Morgan and Mason. Debbie was a newly qualified nurse who worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital around an hour's drive from her cabin. She agreed to work Christmas Day in but not before spending Spending some time with her family. They exchanged gifts and a few laughs and by all accounts it appeared to be a normal Christmas day. Debbie completed her shift at the hospital and as she was working early the next morning her plans would have been to cater to her dogs and to head to bed. What actually occurred that night remains a mystery as Debbie never arrived for her shift the next day and would never be seen alive again. Debbie's colleagues knew that she was very dedicated to her job and were alarmed when she didn't arrive for her shift at 8am on the 26th of December 1985. They contacted her mother Jenny, who was also very worried. She, her husband James and family friend Kevin Gorton arrived at Debbie's cabin to make sure she was okay but found no sign of her. Her car was there, indicating that she had in fact made it home, but Jenny noticed it was not parked in the way that Debbie would usually park it, and the driver's seat was pulled all the way back which was strange given that Debbie was only 5 foot 3. Her dogs hadn't been fed. There were empty beer cans lying around and her work uniform had been tossed on her kitchen floor. This immediately rang alarm bells for Jenny, James, and Kevin as Debbie was known to be very tidy and would never have left her house in such disarray. They saw that she had a new voicemail and hoping it would provide some kind of clue as to where she might be. They pressed play and this is the message that they heard. Hey, Deb. miss you here at work today. Uh, just wondering how you're doing. Uh, if you're able to give me a call up here at the ward, I'm at day or I'll give me a call at home tonight. Uh, you've been out a lot of days. You may worried when you miss another one. Just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. <laughs> Alarm bells immediately started ringing for Jenny as she knew that Debbie hadn't missed as many days of work as the man had said. At this point, Debbie had only missed a few hours. Had the man harmed Debbie and left his message to cover his tracks? Jenny called the police who told her she would have to wait three whole days before reporting her missing as Debbie was a 28-year-old woman and could disappear if she wanted to. Jenny was not satisfied, adamant that something was wrong and the police eventually agreed to search Debbie's home five days after she was last seen. They didn't find anything, although they did not search the pond located on Debbie's property, claiming they had assumed Kevin had already looked there. I'm not sure why they thought this, but even if he had, Kevin is not a law enforcement officer and police should have looked in the pond again. On the 1st of January 1986, Kevin called his friend Gordon Childress and asked him for help to search the pond. And he immediately noticed footprints and drab marks that led them into the middle of the pond which was only 5 foot deep. There, half in a 55 gallon barrel, was the body of Debbie Wolfe. Kevin and Gordon immediately called the police and they removed Debbie and the barrel from the pond. When Jenny was able to look at the clothes her daughter had been found in, she was adamant that none of them belonged to Debbie. She was wearing brown corduroy trousers that were too big for her and also unzipped a black Pittsburgh Steelers top, an army field jacket which was confirmed not to be hers, a 38C bra even though Debbie usually wore a 34B and men's Nike shoes that were three sizes too big for her. Given the circumstances, police and Debbie's family were convinced that she'd met with foul play. A spokesman from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office told the Wilson Daily Times, I'm reasonably positive it will be investigated as a murder but we're awaiting the results of the autopsy, The autopsy was performed the day after she had died and the medical examiner determined that Debbie had drowned, but listed the manner of death as undetermined, meaning they were unable to conclude if it was an accident or if Debbie had been murdered. Despite how her house was found, the clothes she was wearing and the suspicious voicemail left on her answering machine, police concluded that Debbie had been playing with her dogs, slipped and had fallen into the pond. There are so many problems with this conclusion, it's hard to know where to begin. Experts have claimed that the condition of Debbie's body does not align with the theory that she drowned accidentally. They claim that while drowning victims are often found with their eyes and mouth open, and with their hands in a claw-like pose, Debbie's body didn't look like that at all, and she almost looked peaceful, just as if she was asleep. Except for some abrasions on her knuckles, which could have been defensive wounds. Yes. Jenny and Jerry were also apparently able to give their daughter an open casket funeral which shows how good condition her body was in when discovered. Bodies that had been in water for seven days would not be in such good condition due to the bloating and slippage that occurs. Also the pond that Debbie was found in was full of silt which would have clung to Debbie if she'd been in the pond for a week. Not only was there no silt found on her body but there wasn't even any found in the pockets of her clothing which makes me wonder, had she been placed in the water closer to the time she was found? One thing that just doesn't make sense is how she would have slipped into the pond and ended up in a barrel. Surely someone would have had to have placed her body into the barrel, right? Not according to the Cumberland County Police Department, who claimed that the barrel never even existed. Jerry, Gordon and Kevin, who were all present at the scene when Debbie's body was discovered, all claimed to have seen the barrel as divers removed it from the pond. Jenny even recognised the barrel as it was one that had been on her daughter's property for years. Debbie would use this barrel for target practice and it was not in its usual spot, leaving an imprint on the ground and right enough, both Gordon and Kevin confirmed that the barrel Debbie was found in had a lot of small holes in it. The three claimed that police did not take the barrel into evidence the night Debbie was found and when they returned the next morning the barrel was gone. Captain Jack Watts claims there was never a barrel on the crime scene saying quote, In my opinion and the opinion of some of the investigators, What appeared to be a barrel to some of the divers could have been Debbie's jacket, which may have ballooned out as she was lying at that angle at the bottom of the pond." I'm pretty sure anyone could tell the difference between an inflated jacket and a 55-gallon metal barrel, and it's insulting to insinuate that this barrel was just a figment of Kevin, Gordon and Jenny's imagination especially when news articles written at the time clearly document that Debbie was found in a barrel. If you're watching this on YouTube, on your screens right now are two newspaper clippings, both from the week Debbie was found. Both clearly state that she was found in a barrel and both articles contain a comment from a police spokesman. If you are listening to this podcast, you can find the photos on my website. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion... Police fucked up by not entering the barrel into evidence the day that Debbie was found and they didn't want to admit that this mistake cost them one of the most vital pieces of evidence they had. As for where the barrel went, I believe that whoever killed Debbie was able to remove it from the scene after police left and dispose of it elsewhere. The killer either got very lucky and happened to pass Debbie's isolated cabin that night and see the barrel laying outside, or... He was on the scene that day, knew that the police didn't take it with them, and knew that they had the opportunity to remove it themselves. This could also be said for how Debbie's body was in such good condition to have been in the water for seven days. Did someone close to the initial search have something to do with it? Did the killer know when they would be able to put her body in the pond? Or, again, did they just get lucky? You might also be thinking... What about the footprints that led Gordon and Kevin to Debbie's body? Well, the police don't believe that they existed either. They claim that the moss at the bottom of the pond was too thick and that it would be impossible to leave footprints. I can see their point with this, but why would these two men say that they saw footprints when they didn't? They claim that they are what led them to Debbie's body, however the pond was only 30 foot wide and 5 foot deep, so even without the footprints, I don't think it would have taken anyone long to find her. The police and the Wolf family have drastically different theories as to what happened to Debbie on the 26th of December 1985. I will start with the police's theory that she slipped and fell into the pond while playing with her dogs. We have already spoken about so many things that just don't add up with this being an accidental drowning, but believe it or not, there's more. Only one teaspoon of water was found in Debbie's lungs, which totally scraps the idea that she was drowned in my opinion, and I don't understand how the medical examiner was able to say that she did. Some police claim that Debbie died from cold water immersion syndrome, which is distinctly different from drowning, but could align with the police's theory that her death was an accident. From what I was able to gather, cold water immersion syndrome is when your body goes into shock after it is suddenly immersed into cold water and death happens very quickly afterwards. The person doesn't drown or experience hypothermia. Instead, their blood vessels constrict so much that it affects their respiratory syndrome and makes it hard for them to breathe. The body has to work extra hard to pump blood around the body and can't cope, therefore goes into cardiac arrest. I hope I've explained this right. It was quite confusing to figure out exactly what the syndrome is, as there is a lot of different types of immersion syndromes, but I think that this description is fairly accurate. This theory seems possible when I first looked at it, but there's a lot of things that doesn't make sense with this theory. It doesn't explain the barrel, the state of her house, or why she wasn't wearing her own clothes when she was found. Another glaring inconsistency I just can't get past is the shoes that she was wearing when found. If she was playing with her dogs and slipped, or was just near the pond, tripped and then fell in, you would expect there to be mud on her shoes, right? Wrong. Absolutely no mud whatsoever was found on the shoes she was wearing. There has only been one postmortem photo released and it is of the shoes she was wearing. You can't see any other part of her body, And if you want to see it for yourself, it will be on our website, uncoveredtruecrimepodcast.co.uk. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, you will be able to see the picture now. I don't understand how you can explain that away and combined with everything else, I think it is obvious that Debbie was murdered. But by who? Well, Debbie's mother Jenny has an idea. She believes that Debbie was killed by a male volunteer from the Veterans Administration Hospital. This man had apparently asked Debbie out, but Debbie had said no. It was supposedly this same volunteer who left the voicemail on Debbie's answering machine and after speaking to police, he refused to take a lie detector test and then left town. Dr Maurice Godwin, former police detective turned forensic investigator, has taken on Debbie's case and does not agree with the police's conclusion that it was an accident. He claims to have access to her original case file and autopsy report, which apparently shows that semen was found on Debbie's body, but has since been lost by the police. Not only could this evidence prove that Debbie's murder was sexually motivated, but it is another detail that just doesn't align with her being in the water for seven days. You'd have thought that any forensic evidence like that would be long gone after a week in the water. Even if police were able to find this DNA sample after 35 years, it's possible that the sample would be too degraded to match to any suspect. Regardless, Debbie deserves justice and a full and proper investigation into her murder. Jenny Edwards never stopped fighting for justice in her daughter's case and was able to convince the State Bureau of Investigation to take a second look, but sadly nothing came from this and her death is still classified as an accidental drowning. Both of her parents died in 2002 and all but one of her siblings has also passed away. Debbie's case was profiled on Unsolved Mysteries back in 1990 and there are rumours that they will cover her case again since they have relaunched their show on Netflix. This has not been confirmed by the team at Unsolved Mysteries, however if they do cover it, I will make an update episode should there be any new information released. If you have any information related to Debbie Wolfe's murder, please contact the Cumberland County Police Department on 910 321 6592. All photos and sources related to this case can be found on our website, uncovertruecrimepodcast.co.uk. That's everything I have for you today. Thank you for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.